Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. Do you think the ABC's left wing? Don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning. Yes, we're here on Solidarity Breakfast. Annie and... Kim. Yes, and uh, of course we're going to be talking big, big things this morning. Uh, we're going to take you to the uh, refugee rally, but the one in Sydney. We did go down to the Melbourne one, but uh, Vivian Langford, who's a fellow broadcaster at 3CR, contributed some fantastic material from the Sydney uh, rally. And of course that rally and these rallies were to commemorate the fact or to mark the fact that uh, the doctors have uh, medical professionals uh, apparently now no longer have the threat of two years jail if they report abuse in the camps. There you go. Yes, a small step forward. A sm- that's what they said, a small step forward. But because, of course, that's uh, it's such a bizarre notion that uh, you should be allowed to do covert abuse on public money. Just horrifying. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, later on, we're going to continue the... For- uh, we're coming soon to the end of the 40 days of history uh, for uh, 3CR's 40-year anniversary uh, birthday. Uh, the 19th of November is the last day, but this week we're going to delve into the past and we're going to... Uh, show, play a piece from two pieces. One piece is from the seventies, and it's from an, uh, East Timor calling. And uh, if you listened last week to our uh, interview with uh, Sister uh, Susan Connolly about West Papua, you'll get a shiver down your spine because there's some parallels there that uh, are remarkable. We follow that with uh, uh, the nurses' dispute from two thousand and twelve. So we don't forget as we lead different uh, governments in Australia are leading people to the privatisation of hospitals uh, drinking hole. Uh, Go back to 2012 and hear what the issues were for nurses, which is quite telling. Exactly. And also that you can fight back if you're organised. That's exactly right. And, uh, of course, we've got uh, This Is The Week That Was, and then we're going to have a conversation fest with Dr Noah Pazil about the US elections. Yes, we might be talking, (laughs) speaking to you from the apocalypse. Yeah, that's exactly right. We've got a couple of different announcements before we go on, and we'll probably repeat them. 
One of them is that uh, we went down to the Defend and Extend Public Housing rally that was held on Parliament steps on the 10th, and next week we will actually focus on homelessness, that issue. But uh, they were calling for people to go to Mooney Valley Rosecourse, not to bet, but to be outside the uh, Labor Party conference, which is going on this weekend. And uh, they, eight, from 8 o'clock this morning, uh, delegates, uh, uh, people from Defend and Extend Public Housing are going to be handing out pamphlets to delegates, letting them know that uh, public housing transfer of land titles to private interest is not in the citizens of Victoria's interest and that uh, you need, they need to be aware that uh, the public are not happy, not happy, and so they want you to go down there and help. Why do all these scary things happen in Mooney Ponds? <laughs> you think so? Yeah. <laughs> it, it, maybe it's because it sounds like an alien uh, landscape or something. It does, and I suppose it's quite toffee in a way. <laughs> but anyway, they w- really do need you to go down there and help them out and uh, because it's in everybody's interest to ensure that public housing remains in public land and the whole idea of transferring Trans- get a load of that, transferring title to private hands, public land. It's just incredible. The richer you are, the more things you get for free. That's right. And then uh, this misnomer uh, that it's supposed to be for community and affordable housing, when in fact uh, it's not. I mean, how poor do you have to be, how rich do you have to be to be allowed to be into affording affordable housing? That's the real question. And it's public land. Outrageous. The other one is domestic violence leave hearing at Fair Work Commission, which is in Exhibition Street down the bottom there near Flinders Street. There's going to be a rally in support outside uh, about 8.45am on Monday morning. So that's worth uh, putting in your calendar as well. But you've got another one. Yes, today there is actually an anti-Trump rally happening at one o'clock and it's starting at Flinders, uh, Flinders Street Station. And it's in... Well, against Trump, you probably don't need any other reason, but also <laughs> in solidarity with protesters in the US who have already started fighting back against uh, the election of Trump. Mm. Well, I'm dying to hear some of the things that you've gleaned about um, uh, polling numbers and uh, distribution and also the... Uh, well, you know, uh, it's not compulsory voting in America. So Yeah, we should take comfort in the fact that most people in America did not vote Trump in. <laughs> the vast majority. <laughs> We've decided that it's slow motion chaos. But then you tell me chaos is chaos is a ladder. For anyone who watches Game of Thrones. <laughs> Unemployed, underemployed, receiving social security, getting bullied, penalised or harassed by your job agent or Centrelink. The Australian Unemployed Workers Union is for you. You have rights. Find out more or get involved by going to our website on unemployedworkersunion.com or by calling our National Advocacy Hotline on 03 83 94 5266. It's time to fight back. A 3CR supporter. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. And we will go to the refugee rallies that were on last Saturday. And the first one up, we've divided it up into bits and pieces because there's some fantastic material that came out of the Sydney uh, 
rally, uh, Dr. David Berger, who is was one of the organisers, he has he speak you know everything he says here is um, a fantastic beginning to any discussion about refugee rights. So, Dr. David Berger, it's just absolutely fantastic to see uh, so many here uh, people uh, here today filling right back up uh, towards the main road. Um, in 1936, uh, my grandfather, who was a German-Jewish doctor fleeing arrest in Berlin, uh, came to the UK and he was unable to stay uh, in the UK and had to immediately leave, in fact within two weeks, uh, because he couldn't get a visa because they didn't want any more Jewish doctors. Uh, he ended up eventually getting refuge in, refuge in Egypt, but uh, that's another part of the story. Now, at around the same time as my grandfather was starting his world tour to uh, knock on doors, the British Medical Journal, uh, a publication which, as Barry said, uh, I'm very closely involved with today, uh, noted a 50% increase in suicides amongst German Jews as compared to non-Jews. The journal's only comment on this was to say that, and I quote, from this finding, others may wish to draw an inference but the editors of the journal evidently chose uh, that they would not do so. Uh, and that was pretty much that, uh, as far as comment on Nazi Germany went from the medical profession in Britain. Throughout the 30s, the journal kept to the facts, of which it actually reported precious few, uh, and with its parent organisation, the BMA, uh, refused completely to comment on the human catastrophe unfolding uh, in Germany. Uh, the journal and the medical profession in Britain more widely seem to have concluded uh, that these were internal political affairs for Germany and therefore none of their business. It was just all too political for the medical profession. But as we look back, would loud thundering and stamping of the feet by the medical profession in Britain and elsewhere uh, have halted the Holocaust and changed the course of history? Of course it wouldn't. Do we, however, still wish that the profession had stood up and taken a robust moral stand on the greatest single atrocity in the history of the human race? Yes, of course we do, and I, for one, feel very ashamed that it did not. The ethical roots of our profession go back nearly two and a half thousand years to the school of Hippocrates on the island of Kos uh, in the eastern Aegean, and it was actually their ethical position that marked the Hippocratic uh, physicians out from their predecessors, the Esculapians. That's a hell of a long time. And still today, ethics are the oil which keeps our engine running. And without ethics, our work grinds to a screaming halt. We can't ignore wider ethical and moral questions and simply concentrate on the patient in front of us because those wider ethical and moral questions feed directly into the ethics and morals of how we treat that same person in, front, person in front of us. So when it comes to matters of humanity and common decency, we doctors don't have the luxury of saying, oh, that's politics, we're not interested in politics, that's nothing to do with us. So it doesn't matter whether you want to call human rights, ethics, common human decency, whether you want to call it politics or not, you can go ahead. Uh, but those things are of fundamental importance to our work as doctors and to the society we serve. It's our absolute duty to speak up for the vulnerable and against oppression and to ensure that people are treated in a humane and decent way by our society. And unlike in the 1930s, when doctors should still thank you, when doctors should still have thundered but didn't, 
we know that popular protests today can make a real difference. The government hasn't just amended the Border Force Act to exempt health professionals on a random whim. They've done it because of mass, spontaneous protests all around the country last year by health professionals against the Border Force Act because of the Lady Salento Hospital Act of Civil Disobedience earlier this year when those doctors... Right, when those doctors refused to discharge a vulnerable child without an assurance that the child would not be sent back to the hellish environment of Nauru. Uh, and also the continuing legal challenge that Doctors for Refugees uh, is, as, as Barry said, continuing to the constitutionality of the Act. Uh, and that's why I'm so pleased to be here today with such fantastic support. This time, we're not going to leave it to others to draw an inference. We, the doctors and our supporters, are going to shout loudly and persistently from the depths of our being that Australia's treatment of asylum seekers and refugees is inhumane and abhorrent and we will demand that we do better and that we behave as befits an enlightened, affluent, democratic nation such as Australia. And we'll keep shouting And we'll keep thundering and we will keep being a thorn in their side until this deplorable situation is resolved. Now, that was David, uh, Dr. David Berger, and he was at the uh, Sydney rally last Saturday, uh, a uh, refugee rally in support for uh, refugees. And he obviously is from D Doctors for Refugees. And uh, as he said quite clearly, that uh, not this time, people, doctors are going to stand up. And uh, they've had some success because they they've been removed from the uh, the Border Force Act. They can no longer be charged and given uh, a penalty of two years for uh, raising abuse issues. Uh, now we're going to go on to hear Dr. Stuart uh, Condon. He's from um, Medical uh, MSF Médecins Sans Frontières. Oh, let's dive in there with uh, our false French accent. But anyway, he's really interesting because he actually gives this overview of uh, places that he's been to recently because he just got off the plane. He's got a lot of experience uh, in working in uh, war zones and disaster areas uh, around the world, and we're really honoured to have him. Uh, and he deserves an extra a special round of applause when he comes up because he's just... Uh, got off the plane this morning from the MSF headquarters in Paris uh, and he didn't sleep for 24 hours so he's here. Thank you very much. Um, I was going to try to keep the 24 hour thing to myself but it's out of the bag now. Um, Thank you. I'm going to echo some of the comments that have already been made about uh, the issues around this today. Um, but firstly, thank you for having me. It, it's, it's such an honour and privilege to address a, a gathering like this, standing in the middle of the, the sun, almost the summer sun in the middle of Sydney, to talk about something that's important to all of you as health professionals, as interested people. Um, I'm so sad to talk to a crowd like this, but at the same time, this, this is how it happens. So thank you for, for having me. and, and hearing our messages. So you know MSF, 
there's a few MSFers in the crowd, Médecins Sans Frontières, we're Doctors Without Borders. We work in all those hotspots, the, the wars, the floods, the outbreaks of terrible disease. I, I remember working in Sri Lanka and talking to a patient who'd walked for three days to escape the, the shelling in her area so that she could just be safe with medical care on the other end of it, but walk for three days to do that. Internally displaced people, refugees, asylum seekers, we use lots of different terms for these people, but they're people just like you and I. I, I can also think of recently just visiting Indonesia and, and meeting some Rohingya refugees who'd traveled there last year, and they're still living in camps, still living in quite desperate conditions, and still hoping for a day where they can avoid persecution. These are people just like you and I, and their search for safety is a search for a decent life. That, that's all it is. Migrants and refugees face countless obstacles imposed by the migration policies that are becoming more restrictive than ever, and have, they've got significant medical and humanitarian consequences. An example is just this week, with the dismantling of the jungle camp in Calais in France by the French authorities. As a consequence, you've probably followed this in the news, more than 3,000 adults have been moved to detention centres around France and other undisclosed locations. More than 1,100 minors, unaccompanied, were forced to sleep in containers overnight in the temporary reception centre while the camp burned to the ground. It was uh, shame, just shameful. In a gigantic hangar where the children were going to be processed with the adults and registered, the minors were separated from the adult population solely on the basis of their physical appearance. Have a think about that. Just to have a look at a child, an adolescent, an adult, and then put them in a, a pile, effectively. Treat them as numbers. They were, we were horrified to see adolescents, after a quick look, to be put into the adults' queue, with no interviews, no translators, no appeals. How many children were turned away last week, or sent with the adults to reception centres and orientation centres? Sadly, on the same day, last week, 29 people died in the central Mediterranean and were found by the MSF search and rescue ship, the Bourbon Argos, in an overcrowded rubber boat off the Libyan coast. My colleagues managed to rescue 107 survivors from this raft, and an additional 139 were rescued from another drifting nearby. Why is this happening in 2016? Fences, restrictions, externalized border controls are preventing people's movements, forcing migrants especially the most desperate to flee, to take ever more dangerous routes with disastrous impact on their health and physical integrity. The people we do save and treat on the various routes from war zones, such as Syria, they're escaping war zones, despotic regimes, and desperate poverty in places like Syria and Africa. And they've got significant pathologies. We know this as medical professionals. Our doctors and psychologists see them frequently having respiratory tract illnesses, trauma and psychological illness and distress, almost all of them related to the migration journey itself. This is a policy-made humanitarian crisis. European states have agreed to halt the rescue operations in the Mediterranean, build fences, restrict the movements, and make it as unpleasant as possible for anyone who dares to flee their country. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's just like Australia's pushback policy and offshore detention program. The EU-Turkey deal allows Greece to send people back to Turkey in exchange for, amongst other things, a multi-billion euro financial aid program. In a very di direct way, it's insulting that some governments describe these pushback policies as humanitarian. 
like that deal in Europe, what we are witnessing as doctors and humanitarians is the most organized and collective attempt yet to push people back rather than take them in. With this, Europe, like Australia, sends a dangerous signal to the rest of the world. You can buy your way out of providing temporary protection and asylum. If this is replicated by other nations, then the concept of refugee will cease to exist. People will be trapped in war zones, unable to flee for their lives, under constant threat from warring parties, even bombed in displacement camps, as we've seen earlier this year in Syria. By the end of this year, 2016, the exportation of such policies will result in quite a number of no-man's-land refugee tragedies, such as those in Kenya, Libya, Greece, Jordan, Bangladesh, and the list is likely to grow. We believe the global displacement crisis is a humanitarian one first and foremost. The world is undeniably moving towards more mobility and more population movements. Trying to prevent people from moving is only exacerbating the migration-related health risks. Instead, states must implement migration policies that take mental health, medical and protection needs into a, a consideration. We know these people. We've seen them fleeing war and we've saved many of them from drowning at sea. We've treated their wounds and their ills, cared for their newborn babies. Quite simply, they are the people who need our help and protection the most. While many people around the world, like you are here today, have risen to the challenge by volunteering to help others, political leadership has lagged behind. That's clear, right? We demand that our leaders rise to the challenge. Stop pushing suffering offshore. Stop trying to buy your way out of your responsibilities. Don't instrumentalize aid as a tactic of border control. And instead, use your substantial resources to protect those who need your help. Well, there you go. So fascinating stuff. Uh, the final speaker that we're going to highlight is Dr. Mujid al Murderis, who's from, uh, who's a, a refugee who came on boat. Uh, he's an orthopaedic surgeon, and in fact, he's a bit of a corsair because he is incredibly uh, important uh, orth- uh, orthopaedic surgeon, and uh, he, of course, is one of the people that apparently the border force is supposed to. Uh, torture, uh, the, the law that we've created uh, creates, you know, he, he's the dross, isn't he? He's the person we should be fo- focusing the our... The hangers-on who don't contribute to society, supposedly. That's it. Here we go. You will know uh, Dr. Almuderis uh, is uh, an orthopaedic surgeon. He's not just an orthopaedic surgeon. In fact, he's a world-leading uh, orthopaedic surgeon in the field of uh, osseo-integration, uh, the integration of uh, prostheses into... Uh, uh, amputated stumps. He operates on British and American wounded servicemen. Uh, He's an asset uh, to this country both at home and internationally. Now Dr. Muderis uh, arrived here on a boat uh, in 1999. He was uh, incarcerated as an immigration detainee for almost a year. He was actually fleeing a situation in Iraq which uh, tested his ethical uh, standards to the absolute maximum and in fact he stood up for the ethics of the profession for that uh, he was persecuted and had to flee as I said he arrived here on a boat 
Uh, when he was finally released from detention, he got to work immediately, uh, became registered in Australia, got his specialist qualification, and as I say, is now a world leader. Of course, under the current uh, legislation that the uh, government is proposing, uh, Dr. Muderis would be banned from this country for life, even if he was, even if he was to uh, seek asylum here uh, by boat, was then eventually settled elsewhere, uh, and was to have become the world-leading orthopedic surgeon uh, that he is today, he would not uh, be able to come back to this country to speak uh, at the Australian Orthopedic Association uh, meeting, even on a tourist visa, um, as he's doing, in fact, in the next month at two other international orthopedic associations. So it just shows the inhumanity, the idiocy, the lunacy of the current uh, uh, proposition. So I'm going to hand over now uh, very gratefully to Dr. Almuderas. Thank you. What an honor to be presenting in front of me. Thank you very much, David. And um, I'm very, very humbled and uh, honored to be presenting in front of you all. My name is Munjid, and um, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, I'm also a squadron leader in the Royal Australian Air Force Reserve, and uh, I serve our defense force. Um, and I am a refugee. I came to Australia by boat. The color green used to be my favorite color, but now I feel ill every time I see a barbed wire that's shaded with color green. And that's because I had to suffer again and again, day and night, looking at that color when I was inside Curtin Detention Center. The place that I came to, um, escaping from atrocities in Iraq, by refusing to take off army deserters' ears, a policy that Saddam Hussein and his regime thought that was just and legal. I refused it, similar to the way that my boss refused it. I was luckier. He ended up with a bullet in his head. I didn't. I ran away. I came looking for hope, looking for better life and freedom, and I ended up inside a detention center. Curtin Detention Center was hell on earth not dissimilar to what happens now in Manus Island in Nauru. I can give you a small example. I had the privilege and of serving, <laughs> serving many, many weeks inside Western Australian prison system in jail, in maximum security prison in Broome, and that was fantastic. The treatment was excellent, and it was like heaven comparatively to the Curtin Detention Center. We were treated like animals. I was branded with a number 982 for 10 months. We were fed same food day and night. And we were locked up behind barbed wire constantly. And all of that I can ex uh, accept and, and live with. But what I couldn't live with and accept is that at some stage we were 1,252 people and among us there were more than a hundred children. A lot of the children were unaccompanied minors, were locked behind barbed wires in the shade of darkness without any monitoring and imagine what could happen. This is still happening in Australia and that has to stop.
It is important that we move forward and not dwell in the past. However, my past is what brought, you, brought me here to speak in front of you. We are facing a great challenge in this current era. There is a lot of disasters happening around the world and there is a, a very, very scary move towards xenophobia, racism and all sorts of things that unfortunately made us forget what happened in the past. As a doctor, if I see a patient that come to me for help, I have to treat him, regardless of his race, ethnicity, color or background. I see that Australia has the same legal obligation, especially that we are a signatory to the Refugee Convention 1951. At the same time, I see that there is a lot of goodness among Australians. A lot of Australians are very good people, including those who are regarded as to be right-winged. It is wrong, in my opinion, to call them rednecks or extremists or racists. I think these people have sincere anxiety, and I think that we should have a dialogue with them and educate them. Unfortunately, our government is ill-educated, and I think it's our job to give them the knowledge. and to ease up their anxiety rather than build policies around them. Policies that deprive people from their civil liberties. Policies that treat the people who are at fear to be the fear. Policies that treat people who are at threat to be the threat. Policies that end us up with the dark ages long time ago. It is very important that we move forward it is very important that as a nation we become brave enough and courageous enough to build up long-lasting policies that are based on human, ethical and moral values rather than what's perceived to be a popular vote nowadays. And after all, I wish that we have tolerance and treat people the way we want to be treated. Thank you. Well, he said it all, didn't he? Pretty basic stuff. Yeah. Now, you've got some stuff that we can talk about regarding the American election before. We're going to have a big chat about it later on uh, after 8.30, but this is really interesting stuff. Yeah, just some of the things that I noticed was people remember about Trump going on about how he doesn't want special interests. Um, he even created a hashtag called Drain the Swamp, which was referring to the swamp of lobbyists and other interests and hangers-on around um, the White House and Washington. Well, it appears that he's already started backtracking on this, which is not really a surprise, but it has happened very quickly. So already um, in Trump's transition team, which is, I suppose, this is the transition of power that they like to go on about um, between the Obama regime and the what will be the Trump regime. Um, so some of the people that he has um, brought around himself include uh, lobbyists such as Cindy Hayden of tobacco company Altria, Michael Torrey, owner of the lobbying firm representing the American Beverage Association, Steve Hart, chairman of Williams and Jensen's firm, and Michael McKenna, who lobbies on behalf of Dow Chemical. So just really disgusting people, nothing different from the status quo there. Trump is also relying on a bunch of uh, financial advisors, uh, one who is a former Goldman Sachs banker, 
another who is a former JP Morgan chief, and a bunch of other what I would say are, you know, the capitalist one percent um it's rich classic. and powerful. It's absolutely classic, isn't That's it? happened in two days. Is it two days? <laughs> absolutely classic. All right, so uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR with Annie and Kim. We're going to go to the 40 days of historical uh, uh, programming that's going on, uh, as we said, for 40 days. And uh, today we're going to at breakfast time on 3CR and, uh, and to celebrate 3CR's uh, 40th uh, birthday. 3CRs turn 40, and from Monday, 10th of October, right through to Saturday, 19th of November, we're celebrating. Join us on 3CR Breakfast from 8 until 8.30am, Monday to Saturday, as we delve into our rich 3CR archive and bring you half an hour of historic gems. So start your day with the sounds that built a station. 40 days of groundbreaking audio celebrating 3CR's 40 years of radical radio. The following is from East Timor Calling, a program from the late 1970s. Welcome to this week's East Timor Calling. Earlier this year, the Australian Government announced its partial acceptance of the integration of East Timor into Indonesia. Last week, it announced its full recognition of the integration. However, if we are to judge by its actions over the last three and a half years, the Australian government had accepted integration even before the full-scale invasion. Formal announcement of the government's actual policy on the issue has been expected for some time and was apparently prompted by either the silly season or official hopes that Australian public reaction on the issue had died down. In this program, we summarise just what was the reaction to the announcement. Also, this week, we present recent developments on the plight of Timorese refugees. Firstly, the fact that the refugees plan to proceed with their hunger strike in January if their husbands are not here by Christmas. And secondly, the Melbourne Catholic Archbishop has publicly appealed for progress in the reuniting of refugees' relatives. Mr Peacock got full coverage last Friday when he announced, in a quite roundabout fashion, that the Australian government accepts Indonesia's takeover of East Timor. And the Indonesia apologists were quick to chime in with grunts of approval and a sort of relief that now Australia-Indonesia relations could perhaps be normalised. Facing reality, they said. Peacock himself implied that recognition would help finalise discussions with Indonesia on the question of Timorese refugees and the seabed boundary north of Darwin. In this light, it is interesting to note that the Indonesian Foreign Minister has apparently taken a strong stand on the boundary. The Financial Review on December the 20th reports an interview with Mr Mokhtar in Singapore. In it, Mokhtar said he would aim to have the seabed boundary drawn halfway between Australia and East Timor. Whilst East Timor was under Portuguese rule, negotiations on the boundary broke down when the Whitlam government refused to agree to the median line. Australia instead wanted the boundary drawn along the Timor Trench, a trough about 60 miles south of the Timor coast and 300 miles north of Darwin. The boundary talks may take place in late January. Nine oil companies, including SOBHP and Shell, who have oil exploration licences in the disputed area, will watch the outcome with great interest. 
Reaction to the government's announcement of de jure recognition was rapid and widespread. Many letters were received by the media. The opposition foreign affairs spokesman attacked the Fraser government and the organisations supporting the Democratic Republic of East Timor organised protests. In Victoria, the Australia East Timor Association called a demonstration in the Bourke Street Mall and members of various support organisations met to send a telegram to the parties involved in the negotiations. In a report in The Sun dated Monday the 16th of December, the opposition foreign affairs spokesman, Senator Reit, called on the government to drop its plans to recognise Indonesian claims to control East Timor. Senator Reit said, it is in conflict with basic principles of decency and reduces Australia's foreign policy to one of blatant expediency. He continued, Indonesia's military occupation of East Timor was an act of aggression which was condemned by the Fraser government, the opposition and the United Nations. Yet since the end of 1975, the Fraser government has played a compliant role in the face of this aggression. Now it proposed to condone it by giving it legal status. He then went on to add, without any regard to principle, the government proposes to ignore the slaughter of the East Timorese and the deaths of Australian journalists to enable it to resolve differences over the seabed boundaries and fishing rights. Senator Reid said no concession had been granted to Australia as a result, nor had there been any assurances over the settlement of the border dispute. He said, Indonesia is unlikely to be satisfied with the mere granting of de jure recognition. It intends to claim exclusive fishing rights in an area up to 60 miles south of the existing seabed boundary between the two countries. There will be little confidence that the Fraser government will resist such blatant demands, he concluded. The demonstration in the Burke Street Mall. The Australia East Timor Association held an emergency meeting on Saturday the 16th of December at which it was decided to stage a demonstration the next day. Radio 3CR cooperated by broad broadcasting details of the proposed demonstration and the word was passed to as many members of the organisation as possible. Sunday the 17th was wet and in view of the short notice not many demonstrators were expected. The demonstration was due to begin at 2.30pm and by that time about 50 people had arrived. Members of the public continued to arrive as the demonstration continued until finally about 60 people were present. Speeches were made condemning the government's role in the policy of appeasement of the Indonesians and supporting the right of the East Timorese to determine their own future. The crowd which gathered was sympathetic, many stopping to ask questions. Some members of the public travelled from the outer suburbs to join the protest. One, from Croydon, with his daughter, said that he was disgusted with the total lack of morals shown by the present government in their dealings with the Indonesians. The demonstration lasted for over an hour and even as it broke up more people continued to arrive. In its aim of bringing the government's sellout of the East Timorese to the Australian public's notice, it was most successful. The media, although notified in advance, were noticeable by their absence. An executive member of the Australia East Timor Association met representatives of other concerned organisations on Sunday, December 17th after the demonstration in Melbourne. At this meeting, a telegram was drafted and sent to the following people. Malcolm Fraser, the Prime Minister, Doug Anthony, leader of the Country Party, Andrew Peacock, Australia's Foreign Minister, Bill Hayden, leader of the Opposition, Sir Zelman Cowan, Governor-General of Australia, 
and the Indonesian ambassador. The telegram read, Great concern about sellout East Timor to Indonesia. Thousands of petitions received supporting independent East Timor. It was signed by D. Cruz, National Deputy Convener of the Australia Party, R. Hogg, Victorian State Secretary of the Australian Labor Party, D. Armstrong, Victorian President of the Australian Democrats, the Reverend R. Wooden, Australian Secretary of the Board of World Mission, and J. Sinnott, Australia East Timor Association. The Australia East Timor Association wishes to thank the members of the organisations for their assistance in the drafting and dispatch of this telegram and for their permission to use their names as representatives of these organisations. Timorese music taped at Timorese Cultural Night recently held in Darwin to celebrate the anniversary of the Declaration of the Independence of East Timor. About 150 people, mostly Timorese, attended this function which included singing, dancing and Timorese food. Some of the songs played were written in Portugal by refugees there. These emphasise the similarities between the Portuguese and Indonesian regimes and express a strong sense of their own East Timorese identity as well as the desire for independence. Rob Wesley Smith, when interviewed in Darwin, said a small group of Timorese organised this celebration to keep their culture and support for independence alive. However, he said that most of the Timorese saw themselves as refugees from the Civil War. Also, the recently established Indonesian consulate in Darwin put more pressure on refugees to stay quiet. The Melbourne Herald of the 13th of December reported some Timorese who are tired of being quiet. A group of Timorese women have planned a hunger strike early next year unless their husbands arrive by Christmas. The hunger strike, which is planned to continue until their husbands are allowed to join them, is supported by the Timorese Committee for Permanent Residence. And some Australians are at least expressing concern. The Catholic Archbishop of Melbourne has written to the Prime Minister, Mr Fraser, urging him to allow relatives of East Timorese people in Melbourne to come to Australia. He said many of the Timorese living in Melbourne were quite disillusioned that their relatives might not be able to join them for Christmas. The Archbishop said that Australia might be hampered in bringing relatives out of East Timor itself, but this obstacle does not appear to exist in the case of the refugees in camps in Portugal who wish to come to Australia. He said, and I quote, I believe that there are about 1,200 1, such people. To allow this comparatively small number to come, even outside the normal immigration guidelines, would be a gesture of goodwill which would help to offset the disappointment concerning non-arrivals from East Timor itself. What better Christmas gift? listening to 3CR's 40 Days of Radical Radio Special, celebrating 3CR's 40 fabulous years of community radio.
We now go to the Nurses' Dispute 2012, covered by Stick Together. Uh, good morning, everybody. If I can just say a few words, and I first of all want to say thanks very much to the Alfred Nurses for coming out. Um, absolutely wonderful support. We do have an, an idea about how difficult it is for you here uh, to show your support for the campaign. But your courage, like the courage of thousands of other nurses around the state, today we have got 15 uh, hospitals impacted on, 15 hospitals where nurses are walking out for up to four hours this morning, up to four hours this afternoon. And of course, ensuring that we've got safe levels of care on our wards to make sure that our patients aren't terribly impacted. But we do know that this is what Mr Bailiu wants to see happen in the long term. And so our short term action is just, and it is a just cause to fight to protect the Victorian community when they come into our public hospitals into the future. Mr Davis has seemed very concerned in relation to the cancellation of some elective surgery. The Federation and all the nurses, particularly theatre nurses, wish that Mr Davis was as worried about those 9,500 Victorians who will miss out on elective surgery this financial year as a result of his budget cuts, nothing to do with nurses' action. You have, I think, a copy of EBA Update 45. It's a critical EBA update, even though it's a little bit old now. But importantly, that Enterprise Agreement Update details for you uh, and provides you with a copy of the government's proposal to undermine totally and abolish our nurse-patient ratios. Yet at the same time, the government say they only want a little bit of flexibility and they do not want to abolish ratios. When you look at that document, you'll see that 1.6 of that document says that they only have to implement nurse-patient ratios if they have the capacity to fund those nurse-patient ratios. And given that the hospitals in this state, as a result of this government, are strapped for cash and experiencing harsh budget cuts, we do know that the first thing that will go in the event that we don't protect our enterprise agreement and our nurse-patient ratios will be those very ratios that protect the community and ensure that when they come into a hospital, they are cared for by qualified registered nurses, enrolled nurses and midwives who've got three years training and not three months. Hi, I'm a, one of the nurses at the Royal Melbourne Hospital and my name's Mel. Um, so Mel, tell me what your sign says and um, what we're doing standing in the middle of a very busy road on a rainy day in Melbourne. <laughs> My slice is a honky horn for support uh, for the nurses. Um, so there's a lot of honking going on right now. Uh, so there is a lot of support out there from the public. Thank you! <laughs> Hi, I'm Mary Jones. I'm a nurse and I'm a midwife. Um, I've got over 30 years' experience in the public system. I work in the emergency department of the women's and I also work in the women's health clinics. Uh, so can you tell us where we are right now and what we're doing? We are standing on the corner of Gretton Street and Flemington Road, standing out, wanting people to support us um, in our EBA um, negotiations that the government will not negotiate with us. 
Um, so Mari, can you tell us uh, what impact, what the government uh, wants, which is um, lower ratios, introduction of uh, nursing assistants and things like that, what, what that'll actually mean for you in your work at the Royal Women's? What it will actually mean is that I will be looking after more women. My, um, the nurse-patient ratio will be increased significantly, which means that I will not be able to give the good care that I'm giving at the moment because our nurse-patient ratios are quite good in the areas I work in. And what do you want the, the community to do? I want the community to ring, email, write letters to newspapers and support us and tell the government that they want to keep the good health system they've got and to improve it. My name's Carolyn. I uh, work on 5 North here at the Royal Melbourne. I'm um, a cancer nurse. I work with um, acute uh, leukemia, leukemia patients and um, patients with solid cancers as well. We're out here today to uh, protest the working conditions that the government are trying to impose on us, conditions that have been fought and won hard in the past um, and our New South Wales colleagues have just gained and have been fighting long and hard and, and Mr Bellew sees fit to remove from um, the Victorian public health system. Um, it will endanger Victorian lives and the Victorian public really need to get involved. They don't realise that um, it's their public health system that's at risk and um, it's all to do with uh, not so much pay. Everyone seems to believe it's pay and they'll have you believe it's pay because it belittles um, the message that we're trying to get across but it's about nurse-patient ratios. With less nurses on the ward there's more chance of patients uh, statistically being missed, I guess is the word. Um, we're opposed to bureaucrats deciding what's important in nurse, nursing work. So what right does a bureaucrat have to tell us that uh, making a patient's bed or, or taking a patient's OBS is not important nursing work? It's all assessment and it's talking to our patients and in the end that's what's important for patients not just being a body in a bed. Um, and also, of course, our working conditions and patient continuity of care. They want, they're seeking to introduce split shifts. Split shifts are not conducive to continuity of care. Uh, patient, patients will end up with anything up to... It could potentially be six people to eight people looking after them on any 12-hour time frame, and that's ridiculous for continuity of care. And um, it'll be a team nurse. It'll be a team approach rather than a, an individual approach. So patients will be just lumped in together. So and and let alone nurses who are expected will be expected to maintain their 16-hour work week for me, for example, on part time. Um, they'll be expected to do that over a five or six-day period, where you might come in for three hours over a busy time, go home for two hours, and come back for three hours. Now, it doesn't work. For our nurses' family life either. When do I get a chance to do um, my children's homework? When do I get a chance to see my kids at night and tuck them into bed, see them off to school? It's simply not doable, and let alone for the patient's uh, continuity of care. So um, that's what I'm opposed to, um, particularly. Um, it'd be nice to get a pay rise, but we don't do our job because it's a, it's a money-making job. We do our job because it's the people that we meet.
Yeah, and I think that's been shown really clearly, um, the role of nurses as patients, patient advocates in that this dispute's been going on for over 100 days now and it's really the ratios which is the sticking point because nurses are not willing to budge on ratios, are they? No, no, we're not willing to budge on ratios. It was something that was hard fought and won in 2000. It's a, it's a world-class gold standard. It was first introduced here in the, in the world, here in Victoria, by Victorian nurses in 2000. And um, and to seek to remove it is to return us back to the 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 past. It it, it didn't work in the past, and that's why uh, it works so well. And to, to go back to that is not going to benefit anybody, nurses, patients, the Victorian public health system. Three CRs turn forty, and from Monday, tenth of October, right through to Saturday, nineteenth of November. 40 days of groundbreaking audio celebrating 3CR's 40 years of radical radio. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. A wet solidarity bricky team this and we saw a great 70-something-year-old man rejected and a great 70-something-year-old man accepted. But first, the more important, poor Geoffrey Cuddlesome, sometime jailbird for hiring a well-known hitman to hit someone Geoffrey didn't like too much, and full-time lover who admits young, buxomly, naturally blonde, US of the UN of the US of the world women, are just attracted to him, just fall into his arms. He marries about one a year, and despite his years, Jeffrey has not yet got one grey hair on his attractive pate, black as black, but the sad rejection. A couple of weeks ago, the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, a dedicated chronicler of Jeffrey's betrothals, announced yet another young, buxomly, naturally blonde US of woman, Ashley, had fallen head over in love with the good D-bar doctor. Wedding bells were imminent, and in the cause of objective journalism accompanying the story, with a huge picture of the latest love in a very brief bikini, and telling us she posed for Playboy a couple of years ago. The sad rejection? Not what the doc ordered. This week's headline, and Ashley tells us Jeffrey had approached her via phone and text to play a role in a film about himself playing one of his numerous ex-wives and then told us he loved, told her, I'm sorry, he loved her and wanted her to come here for the Melbourne Cup, sending her an air ticket. Don't forget he publicly proposed to his previous look-alike before the cameras at the Melbourne Cup two years ago, but Ashley rejected the offer and said she had never even met him and wanted poor Jeffrey to apologise for the first story. I feel taken advantage of. I I would never go after a 73-year-old man. How cruel and how very sad, how very, very, very sad. Jeffrey must have just thought she had fallen head over heels at the sound of his bewitching voice. And the less important acceptance of a 70-something, a common thread being both are equally reliable in the truth and integrity department. Yes, a US of male this time. Not young, not buxomly, but definitely a natural blonde. As the US, I've elected a racist, sexist, megalomanic, misogynist, and although no proof he is, homophobic, I reckon we can safely add it to the list, racist, sexist, misogynist, megalomanic, homophobic idiot to run the place.
Street cunning idiots, street cunning enough to convince the dispossessed their caring employers had nothing to do with dispossessing them. That when their caring employers said, you're fired, they were not saying, you're fired, but the ventriloquist dummy for refugees, Afro-Americans, First People Americans, Mexicans and Latinos and Chinese and all non-white lumpens who were firing them. And the dispossessed in the biggest openly capitalist nation in the world, China still laughingly calls itself communist, dispossessed would be saved by one of the richest great exploiters of their labour. Well, possibly one of the richest if he's to be believed. Big ask. So, as in all elections, the only pleasure we can glean is watching the loser lose. A most deserving loser and a least deserving winner. Dragging the dispossessed out of their dispossession by giving their caring employers lots more profit through tax cuts. Although, given they don't pay them anyway, that mightn't create the jobs Donald Trample the Poor, that, that's the idiot's name, whom the poor elected to trample them, mightn't create the jobs Donald promises. But my word, it's a deeply researched policy. So it's four years of cornucopia for the dispossessed. Well, optimistically four years, for with Donald's policies on climate and the environment and train killing and World War III, the dispossessed and the dispossessors across the world might be lucky to make it to four years. They would have been whooping it up in the streets of occupied Gaza in the West Bank. Well, they would have liked to whoop it up, but couldn't risk being shot by the occupiers, because when you're waving your hands in the air, dancing in the streets, who's to say you haven't got a stone in there? But whooping it up because they'll be no longer occupied. Donald says they're not occupied and that they don't deserve a country, so any suggestion of a Palestinian non-people, Palestinian non-state is off the agenda, and Zion big supremo Benjamin, not another Yahoo, heaped the most lavish praise on Donald and thanked him for understanding the Palestinian non-people, non-people are non-people. Don't even exist, which overcomes a bit of a problem for Zion, whose train killers occupying and oppressing the non-people are now neither occupying nor oppressing the non-people. Then again, Donald is so unswerving, so consistent in his policies, if his ramblings deserve the description, that all this may change in tomorrow's ramblings. Rambling back here, our Minister for Fossils and the Fossil Environment, Josh Frydem Icebergs, heading off to Marrakesh to save the world from beautiful lifting the world's poor out of poverty coal, to tell the world True Blue Aussie has the solution to climate change. Pay the big, big polluters trillions to big, big pollute just a little less. As long as it's economical, and being handed trillions from the public purse is generally considered economical. But Josh said Donald had praised the role of coal long, long into the future. Again, Trey's optimistic on the long, long bit, my comment, not Josh's. But the interviewer forgot to ask Josh when he said Donald's comment was a worry, why his exactly the same comment wasn't a worry. Thankfully, true to form, the week that was saved the day. Uh, well, 
Josh explained. The big US ob Supremo elect says coal will power the world forever and he will do nothing about climate change because it's a Chinese conspiracy. While we say coal will power the world forever but say we do believe in climate change and hand trillions to the big, big polluters so enough people will keep voting for us thinking we are doing something about it. So it's really a difference on how you go about doing nothing about it. Uh, thanks, Josh. Pleasure. It's a bit hard to determine from where the conspiracy emanates, given the absolute certainty of two great minds. Donald, a Chinese conspiracy, no notion Senator Malcolm Roberts' life, as certain it's a UN of the US of the UN of the world long-haired commie conspiracy. Our feeling is that given the Chinese are evil commies, fooling the world by appearing to be 100% capitalist, it could be both. And the usual suspects have emerged triumphant to announce Donald's victory proves that political correctness has run amok. See, the phrase politically correct sounds benign, sounds like something positive, doesn't it? But no, it's a pejorative, one of the nastiest of nasty pejoratives. Another conspiracy by the long-haired commie greenie wooden working in iron lots, or by the Chinese, or, or by the commie UN of, or, or all three. And we must have the right to insult and offend. Donald would never have made it to the White House, never have made it to the White House, if he hadn't been able to insult and offend. Take insult and offend off the table, and you might be forced to come up with a policy or two. Might be forced to come up with a policy or two. Former Big Supremo Tiny a bit more for the bosses spoke for them, and Tiny said True Blue was he so badly needed a true centre-right party, leaving us to ponder what he might consider a right-right party. The usual suspects, Corey, George, Eric, Tidy and co, admitted that while they celebrated the US of result, they were disappointed that the first woman had not been elected, rejected by the deplorables. Uh, but then it was her own fault. She supports abortion, for instance, and everyone knows that is not a woman's business to decide. Eric put his non-pejorative, properly politically correct position. We asked Big Supremo Malcolm Tunnapool if he agreed with the usual suspects. I, uh, uh, I, uh, uh, he declared his position. The media told us he was relieved after a conversation with Donald as, as someone who, like me, has moved from filthy, bloated, rich, caring business class into politics. He allayed my fears that when he said he would be the voice of the dispossessed, he might admit it. But he assured me we have nothing to worry about. B but you said he was loathsome. I have been cruelly misreported. I said it would be loathsome if he didn't win. And to end all that, Donald confirmed or reconfirmed the US OB's commitment to democracy, the democracy bit of liberty, freedom and. Let me assure you, folks, the election was not rigged. The election was not rigged for crooked Hillary. And Donald can now be guaranteed to pursue religiously the freedom of capital bit of the great trifecta. Good to see commemorating the great slaughters that honed this country's great values back on the agenda. Great celebrations yesterday for the 11th hour of the 11th month, the honoured dead, true patriots.
A sigh of relief from the non-celebration two Fridays ago when the media could not even bring itself to mention that true traitors had voted not to send young non-patriots to the slaughter to hone our great values. Reminds me, finally, of the final line of a poem I wrote in Italy many years ago based on far less obvious commemoration by the losers in war. To win or lose is an ephemeral result quite pyrrhic to the dead. Good morning. Well, good morning, Kevin. <laughs> yes. That was, uh, of course, this is the week that was, and on we're on uh, Solidarity Breakfast, Annie and Kim, and we're just about to have a chat with Dr Noah Pasil. How are you, Noah? I'm good, thanks, Annie. How are you? Good. Great to hear your voice. And, and, and Kim, how are you? Good, yes. Good morning. Good morning. We're talking American politics. Is there anything else today? <laughs> Impossible. American politics. That's right. Well, uh, apparently, uh, as Kim's pointed out already, that uh, 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 oh. Trump's already backtracking on <laughs> lobbyists in Wall Street. But then, I mean, that's all rather common sense, isn't it? Yeah, very predictable, actually. Um, I, I think a lot of what will happen now will be pretty, fairly predictable. Um, I mean, Trump's hero is Ronald Reagan. Political hero is Ronald Reagan. Um, and a lot of what... Um, he espoused during the campaign um, around economic policy was actually anti-Reaganite. So I think uh, now that he's in power, now that he's secured his position, um, we'll see a uh, a pretty um, I think a, a pretty a predictable um, rolling out of more Reaganite policies around. So what? Um, you, what are you saying? He's a liar. Um, I'm saying he said whatever he thought was necessary to get into the White House. Um, and I don't think he, I mean, I, I, you know, I think he's a very, well, yes, he, you know, I think he lied. Um, but I also think there's a element of this, um, uh, what would you call it, this sort of um, delusion that those Reaganite policies uh, were beneficial for the U.S. people. Mm. So, you know, I think there is an element of mistruth in it or, or untruth in it and a bit of um, delusion around the efficacy of um, of tax cuts for the rich, um, trickle down um, and those sort of policies which were very much at the forefront of the Reagan period, which Trump has consistently talked about as uh, necessary to um, push the... U.S. economy forward. So these are the largest uh, tax cuts since Reagan. Is that correct, or are they even larger? No, they're, they're, no. Reagan's were huge. They were. Um, he took the top tax rate from eighty to twenty-five in one oh. fast splash, um, and then corporate tax rates I think were halved as well. So um, yeah. I, I don't think there's enough scope to to uh, repeat the, those, but certainly the largest since the Reagan period, and, um, you know, it is all based on this mythology that, uh, you know, people at the top uh, will invest in the well-being of the rest of the community. Well, um, it's fascinating because when people go to places like Los Angeles and other uh, uh, places in America, large cities, the infrastructure is uh, under stress, and it's probably, oh, yeah, can be completely... Uh, uh, slated towards those uh, t- 
original tax cuts. Oh, indeed. I mean, uh, well, you know, the, the, we're seeing it here in Australia with the push towards public-private or, or private infrastructure. Um, the US was well ahead of us in this regard. Uh, you know, I have to say, I, you know, for all his faults, I thought Paul Keating's interview the other night on the ABC when he was asked about, um, you know, what Australia should do in regards to the US, and his reply was, you know, we see the US as some sort of um, template or some sort of model, but in fact, uh, our society is far better. You know, we have a better sense of fairness. Uh, we have a social welfare system. We look after our aged better than the US. We have a, you know, um, cradle-to-grave health, universal health system. Um, you know, I know those things are being frayed at the edges, uh, especially by the Conservatives here in Australia. But nonetheless, I mean, I think that reminder that our society and the values on which we uh, base our society, especially around government having involvement and uh, a responsibility for things like infrastructure and social welfare, should be something that we do. We we uh, set we remind ourselves of all the time, and we set ourselves apart from the U.S. Because I think you know that. The questions around inequality in the U.S. I'm not surprised at Trump's victory. In fact, I didn't predict it. I'm not going to say that I, you know, that I somehow um, looked into a crystal ball. But I'm not surprised at all because the levels of alienation, inequality, um, cynicism, uh, violence, um, polarization, fear in the U.S. Everything I read just suggests that they're at, they're, they're just heading off the Richter scale. This is a society in turmoil. This is a sort of related question to that. Why do you think the pundits missed it? Why were they so surprised? Um, I think there are probably a couple of reasons, and one of them similar to Brexit, I think, and the uh, and the inability to see what was happening there. I think there are a lot of pundits who live in a bit of a bubble, the Washington or the London bubble, depending on, and um, they're unable to. They, they were unable to to see the extent that uh, the country was uh, in dire straits and that people were really troubled. Um, I think also there are a couple other things. One is I think there were a lot of shy Trump voters, people who wouldn't even anonymously um, during the polling period uh, say that they were voting for Trump, but in the last moment um, decided to do so. And I think also... You know, I think this, the sort of levels of misogyny and the gender question can't—you you can't just ignore that altogether. I think you're um, right. I, I, I'm yeah. actually think that's completely correct. I think this is the last gasp of uh, uh, white male uh, hold on. Um, you know, like you know, we. I, I think uh, well, someone said it about the only way uh, a, a woman was going to become the Prime Minister of Australia was by knifing someone in the back and mm. and uh, saying, but uh, worse in America. Uh, the Americans really seem to have. So someone pointed out to me that uh, maybe fundamentalist Christian um, attitudes really play into this because, of course, you know, women are the root of sin. Oh, I'm sure there are a whole range of, you know, um, re sort of gender questions that um, sort of provoked an anti-Hillary uh, vote. Now, the other thing one has to remember is the US doesn't have compulsory voting. 
That's right, um, exactly. And so what you end up with is, is people at the margins, usually the more, you know, the, the, the Reagan's evangelical right um, and, you know, the, um, the, the sort of uh, progressive left to some extent come out. And, you know, centre America, I don't know what they do, whether they vote or whether they, some do, some don't, but the voting numbers aren't uh, really... Um, representative, I think, of the overall attitude of the country, and that's a real problem. Well, Kim's got uh, some interesting information about that. Mm, okay. Oh uh, well, it was actually something that uh, I was reading in the Washington Post, and it was actually data about the 2008 election <laughs> of Obama. But the person, and it was just before the election that this came out, and the journalist was arguing that the problem with the demographics and the data is that they're not granular enough. Mm -hmm. And when he had a look into it, um, you can actually map these kind of post-industrial towns like Michigan and Ohio, and you can actually map that around Main Street, so where all the workers live in the cities, is um, densely um, democratic territory. And as soon as you go out, further out from the city, it becomes more and more Republican. So people weren't actually looking within the different states. But what I found quite interesting was that um, the analysis ended with saying that something about those demographics would have to drastically change for Trump to win. Either Democratic voters just don't vote at all or they somehow win them over. I'd be yeah. interested to see that data. It's not out yet. Yeah, I, I think both probably occurred. Because, um, I mean, the, the drop in the Democratic vote from Obama to Clinton's um, um, quite sizable. Um, I, I would think that some Sanders voters, so some Democrats who voted for Sanders probably voted for Trump. Um, I mean, I, that sounds... No, I think you're right. I think they're muddying the waters. They believe that, that there is a an element of uh, change, bring the poison out and change is, is good. Or well, they just want to actually... Yes. Um, do over the ruling class, even if it hurts them as well. Yeah, that's right. Indeed, indeed. And, and also, I mean, Trump did talk about protectionism. Um, I mean, you know, these are policies that I think will fall by the wayside very, very quickly. Yeah, well, it's um, like in England when they said that they'd save the NHS if you got right, Brexit. Yeah. They just lied, basically. They did. And I think uh, um, Trump will do the same. I don't think there's any chance of a, of a move towards protectionism. I think they will probably get rid of the TPP, which for us is good. Uh, is a good thing. Absolutely. It was a, a horrendous policy. Um, and, um, you know, free trade in itself is proving... Free trade. To, yes. It's neither free trade nor... Um, well, it's, it's certainly not... A, a, it's certainly not a policy that we should just embrace without... Uh, looking, uh, scrutinising it in a bit more detail. These these multi bilateral and multilateral trade agreements. I think this. Um, I think that George Orwell well pointed when he said that when something is labelled one thing, it's usually the opposite. Yes, yes. There's a, not much free trade in free trade agreements. I I, I agree. Um, but the. I mean, the, I think the, the the Trump's. He made two. I think he had two sort of um, bullet point statements that resonated more than any other. And everything else he said, I think, really just became um, white noise. And the two were that um, 
economic policies of the last 20 years had offshore jobs and he was going to bring them back to America. Yep. Um, so that's that Rust Belt. Yep, that's you know, right. That, that sort of, you know, that um, Kim just mentioned. And he uh, won't do it, of course. No, he won't do it, but that would have resonated, you know, in Detroit. Oh, hugely. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think the second um, thing that he, the sort of second um, statement that he kept on making was that he was anti-establishment. Yeah, even though he's part of it. It's such an oxymoron. It's amazing. It is, but I can understand why. He, I mean, um, Farage and Johnson did exactly the, said exactly the same thing and made exactly the same argument um, in the lead-up to Brexit, and that is, yes, we are the establishment, and but it's the fact that we are the establishment that gives <laughs> us the knowledge yeah. to actually tear it down. Yeah. And also the we fact that all the it. media was voting was campaigning for Hillary also makes it seem like they're an outsider. Yeah, yeah, it's hysterical. And, you know, the role of the media, which is really fascinating, I was wondering if there was some sort of double game going on because even though there were channels that were supposedly against Trump having that message, they were actually promoting him purely by having his face there all the time. Yeah, and that's the... I mean, that is all... I mean, we, you know, the same thing happens here with Hanson. Um, I don't think there's a double game. I think it's just the irony of the way that we report things. You know, the, the more sensational and uh, ridiculous something is, the more airtime it gets, which gives it seems to give it air, and in that process legitimates it. And if it's said often enough, people start to believe it, and then it takes on a life of its own. I think, yeah, I don't... I have to say, just from my... I think the mainstream media in America would have liked Hillary to win. She was the establishment um, candidate. I know, uh, I mean, establishment in the sense that for the markets and for capital, she was the safe option. And, um, you know, Trump's not... I think the uncertainty around what Trump will do is probably less... Attract makes him a less attractive proposition um, for capital than Hillary. Not to say that they won't benefit under him. I just don't think they would have had as much. Um, I, don't, I think a lot of capital would have felt a little bit uneasy about uh, what Trump um, might pursue because he is an egotist. Oh, he's, he's a, a yeah, he's a narcissist. Yeah, it's quite yeah, clear. Yeah. And, yeah, and whether he's controllable in the way that Hillary would have been um, and as predictable is something that I think Capital was probably, uh, you know, would, would have had within their um, um, uh, sort of rationalisation. Also, he has all these expectations now from people who think that, and he was positioning himself, if you vote for me, I'll bring change, and that could be That's a problem right. for him at some point. You're on 3CR. Uh, this is Solidarity Breakfast. We're talking to uh, Dr. Noah Pasil, Annie and Kim, and we're talking US politics. It could be that they're just uh, the general population just want to be entertained. Uh, I, maybe some some small or some proportion. I, I don't know some percentage. I think that you know, looking at the, um, I mean, just the the sort of levels of emotion and. Um, I think, you know, the, there is a real sense that the U.S. is in crisis. I mean, the, you know, over the last few years we've watched as, you know, um, there's been an increase in uh, uh, police brutality and, and, and the number of black people dying 
um, at the hands of government. We've seen race riots. Um, uh, you know, the questions around inequality have heightened even further. Um, you know, there's a real cynicism about government, a real anger. There's um, attacks against Muslims have in, in increased. Mm, yeah. uh, you know, the, this. You know, um, uh, questions around climate change. I mean, the the environmental problems in the U.S. If anyone, if you ever get a chance to read some of the material around it, uh, you know, some of the agricultural um, areas are now really, you know, sort of facing crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, like yeah, one yeah. goes through all the list of problems, and people will be seeing, you know, people living this. Um, the polarization. Uh, you know, I come back to this. I think the U.S. is a country that is incredibly polarized, more so than maybe any time in the last sort of since the civil rights uh, 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 movements of the 1960s. Well, that's fascinating. One of the things that, uh, Kim, you were saying that uh, yesterday you were uh, giving out pamphlets. Oh, yeah, there's a rally in Melbourne today against Trump and in solidarity with protesters in the U.S. But what I noticed, and I mean, it's just anecdotal, but usually you don't get a whole lot of, well, you get a certain percentage, but you don't get this many right-wingers who want to come up and yell at you. Um, But there were quite a lot of vocal Trump supporters, so I think it's emboldened them, but that's just anecdotal. No, no, it's anecdotal, I agree. Well, anecdotal, but also the the glee, the sort of smugness and glee of people like Hanson, Abbott, Bernardi. I mean, you know, the real vanguard of the the right here in Australia over the last few days, uh, for me, is very disturbing. And I think that... um, you know, I believe that uh, we will see a snowball effect uh, around uh, quite reactionary policies and politics and speech in the next few decades or next few years. And, you know, potentially, um, you know, the, I think the challenge now is for progressives to stand up and be really vocal and uh, and start to, um, to, to collectively organise uh, ways of uh, maintaining or, or creating some sort of um, um, react, you know, real response to what's happening. Because I think this is a... No, I don't think... I believe we're in a period where uh, conservatives are on the rise. Um, you know, I know that's that's not an incredible... You know, that's not... I'm not saying anything here that, um, that we can't... We haven't been observing for the last few years, but this might be the moment that tips... Uh, the balance of power in favour of conservatives and the last 30 or 40 years of gains around things like uh, race, uh, gender rights, uh, um, um, sexuality rights, environmental rights, animal rights, these could all be um, completely uh, sort of damaged, uh, damage is the wrong word, but wound back. Well, um, we're coming to the end of uh, our conversation, but I know this might be a bit left field, but uh, there's been uh, increasing uh, rumblings around uh, China and uh, American discomfort and Australian uh, American discomfort at um, China's uh, economic rapacity, I suppose, across the world. And um, this connection that's been made between Trump and Russia. I know it might be seem a little bit left field, but do you think that uh, a detente between the two and then 
uh, a collaboration in a war with China is at all possible? Um, wow. Um, I can't say. I, I can't see detente between the US and Russia. Um, I mean, at the moment, US's main strategic allies are still Western Europe and um, and Japan, uh, but Western Europe in particular. And at the moment, Russia is seen as a real spectre um, of, of danger for Western Europe. So I would say that those interests do clash. Um, it's really hard to say. I, well, who US thought that Trump are, would really become the president, yeah, really? US and China are still inextricably economically um, it's entangled. They need each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hillary was uh, also and, more hawkish than Obama on China as well. That's right. So I, I mean, that you know, we saw in Trump's victory speech uh, a stepping back from a lot of the more um, sort of provocative stuff that he said when he was on the campaign trail. Um, and someone I can't remember who I heard say this uh, uh, say that in U.S. politics it's well known that you campaign in in uh, poetry and govern in prose. Um, which I thought, you know, a very, you know, very uh, succinct and um, interesting way of um, distinguishing between what candidates do to get into power and then what candidates do when they're in. And I guess one of the reasons that happens is that it doesn't matter who you are, Trump or anyone else, you still have the uh, restrictions of the of, of the bureaucracy, of the houses, of the uh, the sort of structure of U.S. Uh, politics politics, which means that the president is not all powerful. So there are checks and balances in the system that will mean that it doesn't, that he he will be forced to step back at times uh, from some of the more radical policies that that, um, he's interested in. And the other thing we have to keep in mind is he's the leader of a Republican Party, which is overwhelmingly conservative. Um, So, and he requires their support in the the two houses to get most of his policies through. And so that's going to be a major check and balance on him as well. Well, we're Um, living in interesting times, Noah. We are indeed. Indeed. I mean, that last bit is a little bit optimistic, but it's always good to end on an optimistic note if one can, even when we're talking about four years of Trump. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) that's right. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Noah. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. God, yeah. What is it you said? Someone said uh, it's only a thousand so many days before the next <laughs> Anyway, Just by the turn way, the clock over. Yeah, just turn the clock over. We're coming to the end of the show at so- a Solidarity Breakfast here at 3CR and we've got a couple of things to remind you of. Labor Day, uh, uh, Labor Party Conference at Mooney Valley Racecourse is going on and Defend and Extend Public Housing are there. They've been there since 8am, letting delegates know that public housing transfer of land titles to private interests is not in Victorian citizens' interest. They would really like some support. Get down there. It it affects all of us, the whole of Victoria. Uh, This whole notion of transfer of private, to private hands, public, uh, 70% of public housing titles to private hands we're just just transferring not nothing else it's not you know no money involved 
giving away. Giving away because they say that uh, public, the uh, need for uh, social housing is going to be uh, taken over by private interests and they call misnomer affordable housing, community and affordable housing. But, of course, that's not. You have to be earning something like $25,000 a year to be eligible for these uh, things and there's no accountability. There's the other thing is if uh, discussion with Noah got um, you revved up, there is a protest against Trump here in Melbourne at 1 o'clock at Flinders Street Station. Mm. And, of course, we can't go without mentioning that the great Leonard Cohen has died. We're going to go out with a Leonard Cohen song. Coming up next is Asia-Pacific Currents. We're signing off. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. 
For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.